cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, strap yourself in. I have another extra special guest. John McAuliffe is co-founder and chief investment officer at the Volion Group. They're a $5 billion hedge fund and one of the earliest shops uh, to ever use machine learning as it applies to trading and investment management decisions. Uh, It is a full systematic approach to using computer horsepower and database and machine learning uh, and their own predictive engine to make investments and trades. And it's managed to put together quite a track record. Previously, John was at D.E. Shaw, uh, where he ran statistical arbitrage. He is one of the people who worked on the Amazon recommendation engine. And he is currently a professor of statistics at Berkeley. I don't even know where to begin other than to say, if you're interested in AI or machine learning or quantitative strategies, uh, this is just a master class in how it's done by one of the first people in the space to not only do this sort of machine learning and apply it to investing, but one of the best. I, I think this is a fascinating conversation, and I believe you will find it to be so. Also, with no further ado, my discussion with Volion Group's John McAuliffe. John McAuliffe, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. I'm really happy to be here. So so let's talk a little bit about your academic background. First, you, you start out undergrad computer science and applied mathematics at Harvard before you go on to get a PhD uh, from California, Berkeley. What What led to a career in data analysis? How early did you know that's what you wanted to do? Well, it was a a winding path, actually. I was very interested in uh, international relations and and foreign languages when I was finishing high school. In fact, I spent the last year of high school as an exchange student uh, in Germany. Hmm. And so when I got to college, I was expecting to major in government and go on to maybe work in the foreign service, something like that. Really? So yeah. this is a big shift from, from your original expectations. Yeah, it took, a, it took about one semester for me to realize <laughs> that uh, none of the questions that were being asked in my classes had 
definitive and correct answers. Uh-huh. Uh, did that frustrate you a little bit? It did frustrate me, yeah. And so I stayed home over winter. I stayed, excuse me, I didn't go home. I stayed uh, at college over winter break to try to sort out what the heck I was going to do because I could mm-hmm. see that it wasn't, my plan was in disarray. Um, and I'd always been interested in computers, had played around with computers, never done anything very serious. But um, I thought... I might as well give it a shot. And so in the spring semester, I took my first computer science course. Um, and when you write software, uh, everything has a right answer. It either does what you want it to do or it doesn't. Does not compile. Uh, right? Exactly. So that, that that's really quite, quite fascinating. So yeah. uh, what led you from... Uh, Berkeley to to DE Shaw. They're, they're one of the first quant shops. How did you get there? What sort of research did yeah, you do? Yeah, I actually, I spent time at DE Shaw in between my undergrad and my ah, my PhD program. Gotcha. So it was, it was after Harvard that I went so to that, DE Shaw. So did that light a, uh, an interest in using machine learning and computers applied to finance? Or what was that experience like? Yeah, it, it made me really interested in and excited about using statistical thinking and data analysis to sort of understand the dynamics of securities prices. Machine learning did not play really a role at that time. I think it, not at D.E. Shaw, but you know, probably nowhere. It was too immature a field mm-hmm. in the 90s. Uh, but I had already been curious and interested uh, in using these kinds of statistical tools in, in trading and in investing when I was finishing college. And then at D.E. Shaw... You know, I had brilliant colleagues, sure. and we were working on hard problems, so I really I really got a lot out of it. Still one of the top-performing hedge funds, one of the earliest quant hedge funds, a great a great place to Absolutely. Uh, cut your teeth at. So was it uh, Harvard, D.E. Shaw, and then Berkeley? Yeah, that's right. And then from Berkeley, how did you end up at Amazon? Uh, I sh- guess I should correct myself. Uh, there was a year at Amazon <laughs> after D.E. Shaw, but before Berkeley. And uh, am I reading this correctly? The, the recommendation engine that Amazon uses, you helped develop? I would say I worked on it. I would, okay. you know, the, it existed, it was in place when I got there. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of the, the things that are familiar about the recommendation engine uh, had already been built by my manager and, and his colleagues. Um, but I, I worked, I did research on, on improvements and, and different ways of, of forming recommendations. It was funny because at the time, the, uh, the entire database of purchase history for for all of Amazon fit in one 20 gigabyte file <laughs> on a disk so I could just load it on my computer and, so, and run that. I don't think we could do that anymore. I, could we? we could not. So yeah. thank goodness is Amazon cloud services so you could put what is it 25 years and and hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, transactions. Yeah. So so my assumption is products like that are highly iterative. The first version is, all right, it does a half-decent job, and then it gets better, and then it starts to get almost spookily good. It's like, oh, how much of that is just the size of the database, and how much of that is uh, just a clever algorithm? Well, that's a great question because the two are inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that you make algorithms great is by... Uh, making them more powerful, more expressive, able to describe lots of different kinds of patterns and relationships. But those kinds of approaches need huge amounts of data in order to correctly sort out what's signal and what's noise. The more expressive 
a tool like that is, like a recommender system, uh, the more prone it is to mistake one-time noise for persistent signal. And that is a recurring theme in statistical prediction. It is really the central problem in statistical prediction. So mm. you have it in recommender systems. Uh, you have it in predicting price action in, in, in the problems that we solve and elsewhere. There was a pretty infamous New York Times article a couple of years ago about Target sending out, um, using their own recommender system and sending out um, maternity things to people, a dad gets his do young teenage daughters, what is this, and goes in to yell at them, and turns out she was pregnant, and they, they had pieced it together. Yep. Uh, how, how far of a leap is it from these systems to much more mis sophisticated uh, machine learning and even large language models? It's, it, the answer, it turns out, is that it's a question of scale. Mm -hmm. That wasn't at all obvious before GPT-3 mm -hmm. and, and ChatGPT, but uh, it just turned out that when you have, for example, GPT is built from a database of sentences in English, it's got a trillion words in it, wow. that, that database. And when you take a trillion words and you use it to fit a model that has 175 billion parameters, there is apparently a kind of transition where things become, you know, frankly astounding. I don't, yeah. I, I think, I don't think that anybody who isn't astounded is telling the truth. Right. It, it, it's eerie is, uh, in terms of how um, sophisticated it is, but it's also kind of surprising in terms of, um, I guess, what the programmers like to call hallucinations. I guess if you're using the internet as your base model, hey, there's one or two things on the internet that are wrong. So, of course, that's going to show up uh, in something like ChatGPT. Yeah. You know, underlyingly, there's this tool GPT-3. That's really the engine that powers ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. And that tool, it, it has one goal. It's a simple goal. You show it the beginning of a sentence and it predicts the next word in the sentence. And that's all it is trained to do. I mean, mm -hmm. it really is actually that simple. It, it's a dumb program that looks smart. If you like. Right. Um, but the thing about predicting the next word in a sentence is whether you know the sequence of words that's being output is leading to something that is true or false is irrelevant. Right. The only thing that it is trained to do is make highly accurate predictions of next words. So, so, so when I said dumb, it's really very sophisticated. It just, for we tend to call this artificial intelligence, but I've read a number of people said, hey, this really isn't AI. This is something a little more rudimentary. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a, a critic would say that Artificial intelligence is a complete misnomer. There's sort of nothing remotely intelligent in the colloquial sense mm -hmm. about these systems. Um, and then a, a common defense in AI research is that artificial intelligence is a moving target. As soon as you build a system that does something quasi-magical that was the old yardstick of intelligence, then the goalposts get moved by the people who are supplying the evaluations. Um, and I guess I would sit somewhere in between. I think the language is unfortunate because it's so easily misconstrued. Uh -huh. um, I wouldn't call the system dumb, and I wouldn't call it smart. It's you know those are those are not characteristics of these systems. Not, but not but yet. it's complex and sophisticated. It certainly is. Yeah. It has 175 billion parameters. Right. That doesn't fit your definition of complex. I don't yeah. know what would. <laughs> yeah, that that works for me. So so in your in your career line, where is um, Affymetrics? Uh, and what was that recommendation engine like? Yeah, so that uh, was work I did as a summer 
research intern during my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that work was about uh, what's called, the problem is called genotype calling. So Genotype calling. I'll, I'll explain, Barry. Do you have an identical twin? I do not. Okay, so I can safely say your genome is unique in the world. Mm-hmm. There's no one else who has exactly your genome. Um, on the other hand, if you were to lay your genome and mine alongside each other, lined up, they would be 99.9% right. identical. About one position in a thousand is different. Uh-huh. Um, but those differences are what cause you to be you and me to be me. So they're obviously of intense kind of scientific and applied interest. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to be able to take a sort of a sample of your DNA and quickly produce a profile of all the places that have variability, what your particular values are, mm-hmm. okay? And that, that problem is geno- the genotyping problem. Mm-hmm. Right? And this used to be a very expensive, very complex yes. problem to solve that we spent billions of dollars figuring out. Right. Now, a lot faster, a lot cheaper. A lot faster. In fact, even the technology I worked on in 2005, 2004, is, is multiple generations old wow. and not, not really what's used anymore. So, so let's talk about what you did at the Efficient Frontier. Explain what real-time click prediction rules are and, and how it works uh, for a keyword search. Sure. The, the revenue engine that, that drives Google is uh, search keyword ads, mm-hmm. right? So every time you do a search at the top, you see ad, ad, ad. And right. so how do those ads get there? Well, actually, uh, it's surprising maybe if you don't know about it, but every single time you type in a search term on Google and hit return, a very fast auction takes place. Uh And a whole bunch of companies running software bid electronically to place their ads at the top of your search results. Mm -hmm. And the more or less, the results uh, that are shown on the page are in order of how much they bid. Mm -hmm. It's not quite true, but you could think of it as true. A a, a rough outline. So the first three sponsored results on a, on a Google page, uh, go through that auction process. And I think at this point, everybody knows what page rank is for for, for the, the rest, rest of that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's, that seemed to be Google's secret sauce early on, right? Uh, well, you know, to talk about the, the, the ad play, placement, the, so the people who are supplying the ad, who are participating in these auctions, they have a problem, which is how much to bid, mm-hmm. right? And so how would you decide how much to bid? Well, you want to know basically the probability that somebody is going to click on your ad, mm-hmm. right? And then you would multiply that by how much money you make eventually if they click. And that's kind of an expe- expectation of how much money right. you'll make. And so then you uh, you gear your bid price to uh, make sure that it's going to be profitable for you. And then, uh, so, so really you have to make a decision about what this click-through rate is going to be. You have to predict the click-through probability. And right. that was so the I was going to say, this on. sounds like it's a very sim- sophisticated application of computer science, probability, and statistics. And if you do it right, you make money. And if you do it wrong, your, your ad budget uh, is a money loser. That's right. Huh. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your doctorate, what, what you wrote about uh, for your PhD at Berkeley. Yeah. So we're, we're back to genomes, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, this was around the time when I was in my first year of my PhD program is when the human genome was published in uh, in nature, so it was uh, kind of really the the beginning of the uh, the explosion of work on on kind of high throughput, large scale genetics research, and one really important question when you 
after you've sequenced a genome is, well, what are all the bits of it doing? You can look at a string of, of DNA. It's just made up of these kind of four letters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't want to just know the four letters. They're kind of a code. And some parts of the DNA uh, represent useful stuff that is being turned by your cell into proteins and et cetera. And other parts of the DNA don't appear to have any function at all. And you, it's really important to know which is which as a biology researcher. And so it's... Uh, you know, for a long time before high throughput sequencing, biologists would, would be in the lab and they would very laboriously look at very tiny segments of DNA and establish what their function was. Mm-hmm. But now we have the whole human genome sitting on disk and we would like to be able to just run an analysis on it and, and have the computer spit out everything that is functional and, and not functional, right? Hmm. And so that's the problem I worked on. And a really important insight is that you can take advantage of the idea of um, natural selection and the idea of evolution to, to help you. And the way you do that is you have the human genome, you sequence a bunch of primate genomes, nearby relatives of the human, right. and you lay all those genomes on top of each other. And then you look for places where all of the genomes agree, right? There hasn't been variation that's happening through mutations. And why hasn't there been? Well, the biggest force that that throws out variation is natural selection. If you mm-hmm. if you get a mutation in a part of your genome that really matters, then you're kind of unfit and you won't have progeny, and that'll get stamped out. So, uh, natural selection is this very strong force that's causing DNA not to change. Mm-hmm. And so, when you when you make these primate alignments, you can really leverage that fact uh, and look for conservation and use that as a big signal that something is functional. Huh, really, really interesting. You mentioned our um, DNA is 99.99. Yeah. I, I don't know how how many places to the right of the decimal point you would want to go, but very similar. How, how similar or different are we from, let's say, a chimpanzee? I've always, Great question. There's an urban legend that they're practically the same. It always seems like it's overstated. 98%. 98%. Yeah, so it's a chimp- 2%. Yeah. So you and I have a 0.1% different. Me and the average chimp, it's 2.0%. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so chimps are, are essentially our closest non-human primate relatives. Really, um, really quite fascinating. Yeah. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So so let's talk a little bit about the firm. You guys were one of the earliest pioneers of machine learning research. Explain a little bit what the firm does. Sure. So we run trading strategies, investment strategies that are fully automated. So we call them fully systematic. Mm-hmm. And that means that uh, we have software systems that run every day. Uh, during market hours, and they take in information about the characteristics of the securities we're trading. Think of stocks, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then they uh, they make predictions of how the prices of each security is going to change over time. And then uh, they uh, decide on changes in our inventory, changes in held positions uh, based on those predictions. And then uh, those desired changes are sent into an execution system, which automatically carries them out. Okay. So f- fully automated, is there fully human automated. supervision or it, it, it's kind of running on its own with a couple of checks? There's lots of human diagnostic supervision, mm-hmm. right? So there are people who are watching screens full of instrumentation and, and, and telemetry about what the systems are doing. Uh, but those people are not uh, taking any actions, mm-hmm. right? Unless there's a problem. Right, and then, uh, and then they do. So, so let's talk a little bit about how machines learn to identify signals. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you start with the giant database that is the history of stock prices, volume, movement, etc., and then bring in a lot of additional things to bear. What's the process like developing a particular trading strategy? Yeah. So, as you're saying, we begin with a very large historical data set of uh, prices and volumes, market data of that kind, but importantly, all kinds of other information about securities. So financial statement data, textual data, uh, analyst data. So it's everything from from prices, uh, fundamental, everything from earnings to revenue to sales, et cetera. Yes. I'm assuming the change and the, the delta of the change is going to be very significant mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. What about macroeconomic, uh, what some people call noise, but uh, one would imagine there's some signal in everything from inflation to interest rates to GDP to sure. consumer spending. Uh, are those inputs worthwhile, or how do you think about those? So. We don't hold portfolios that are exposed to those things. So it's it's a it's really a business decision on our part. We are working with institutional investors who already have as much exposure as they want to things like the market or to well-recognized uh, econometric 
risk factors like value and, right. and so they they don't need our help to be exposed to those things they, they they are very well equipped to handle that part of their investment process what we're trying to provide is the most diversification possible so we want to give them a new return stream which has good and stable returns but on top of that importantly is also not correlated with any of the other return streams that they already that they already have that, that's an interesting so can i assume that you're applying your machine learning methodology across different asset classes uh, or is it strictly equities? Oh no, we apply it to uh, to equities, to to credit, to to corporate bonds, uh, and we trade futures contracts. And in the fullness of time, we hope that we will be trading kind of every security in in the world. So so currently, stocks, bonds. When you say futures, I assume commodities. That All kinds of futures contracts. Huh, really, really interesting. So yeah. it could be anything from interest rate swaps to commodities to sure. the the full gamut. So so how different is this? approach from what other quant shops do that really focus on uh, equities? Uh, I think it it's kind of the same question as asking, well, what do we mean when we say we use machine learning or that, you know, we are, our, our principles are, are machine learning principles. Uh, and so how, do, how does that make us different than the kind of standard approach in quantitative trading? And uh, the answer to the question really comes back to this idea we mentioned uh, a little while ago of how powerful the tools are that you're using to, to form predictions, right? So uh, in our business, the, the, the thing that we build is called a prediction rule, okay? That's, the, that's our, the, our widget. And what a prediction rule does is it takes in a bunch of input, a bunch of information about a stock at a moment in time, mm -hmm. and it hands you a guess about how that stock's price is going to change over some future period of time, okay? And so there is one most important question about prediction rules, which is how complex are they? How much mm -hmm. complexity do they have? Complexity is a colloquial term. It's, uh, you know, unfortunately another example of a, a place where things can be vague or, or ambiguous because a a general purpose word has been borrowed in a, in a technical setting. But when you use the word complexity in statistical prediction, there's a very specific meaning. It, it, it means how much expressive power does this prediction rule have? How good a job can it do of approximating what's going on in the data you show it? Remember, we have these giant historical data sets and every entry in the data set looks like this. What was going on with the stock at a moment in, certain moment in time? It's price action, it's financials, analyst information, and then what did its price do in the subsequent 24 hours mm -hmm. or the subsequent 15 minutes or whatever, okay? And so uh, when you talk about the amount of complexity that a prediction rule has, that means how well is it able to capture the relationship between the things that you sh can show it when you ask it for a prediction and what actually happens to the price. Hmm. And Naturally, you kind of want to use high complexity rules because they have a lot of approximating power. They do a good job of describing anything that's going on. Um, but there are two there are two disadvantages to high complexity. One is it needs a lot of data. Otherwise, it gets fooled into thinking that randomness is actually signal. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is that it's hard to reason about what's going on under the hood, right? When you have very simple prediction rules, you can sort of summarize everything that's that they're doing in a sentence, right? You can look you can look inside them and get a complete understanding of how they behave. 
And that's not possible with high complexity prediction rules. So, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the concept of, of how easy it, or, or how frequently you can fool um, an algorithm or, or a complex rule because sometimes the results are just random. And it reminds me of the issue of, of backtesting. No one ever shows you a bad backtest. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with the issue of uh, overfitting and backtesting that just is geared towards what already happened and not what might happen in the future? Yeah, that is, uh, you know, if you like the million dollar question in statistical prediction, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and might you might find it surprising that relatively straightforward ideas go a long way here mm -hmm. um and so let me let me just describe a little scenario of how you deal you can deal with this all right we agree we have this big historical data set right um one thing you could do is just start analyzing the heck out of that data set and find a complicated prediction rule but you're all you've already started doing it wrong the first thing you do before you even look at the data is you randomly pick out half of the data and you lock it in a drawer, okay? And that leaves you with the other half of the data that you haven't locked away. Mm -hmm. On this half, you get to go hog wild. You build every kind of prediction rule, simple rules, enormously complicated rules, everything in between, right? And now you can check how accurate all of these prediction rules that you've built are on the data that they have been looking at. And the answer will always be the same. The most complex rules will look the best. Hmm. Of course, they have the most expressive power, so naturally they do the best job of describing what you showed them. The, the big problem is that what you showed them is a mix of signal and noise, and there's no way you can tell to what extent a complex rule has found the signal versus the noise. All you know is that it's perfectly described the data you showed it. Mm -hmm. You certainly suspect it must be overfitting if, it, if it's doing that well, right? Okay, so now you freeze all those prediction rules. You're not... You're not allowed to change them in any way anymore. Mm -hmm. And now you unlock the drawer and you pull out all that data that you've never looked at. You can't overfit data that you never fit. Right. And so you take that data and you run it through each of these prediction rules that's frozen that you built. And now it is not the case at all that the, best, the most complex rules look the best. Instead, you'll see a kind of U-shaped behavior where the very simple rules are too simple. They've missed signal. They left signal on the table. The two complex rules are also doing badly because they've captured all the signal, but also lots of noise. And then somewhere in the middle is a sweet spot where you've struck the right trade-off between how much expressive power the the prediction rule has and how good a job it is doing of avoiding mis the, the mistaking of noise for signal. Huh. And, really, really intriguing. Yeah. So, so you guys have, you've built one of the largest specialized machine learning research and development teams in, in finance. How do you assemble a team like that? Um, and how do you get the brain trust uh, to do the sort of work that's applicable to managing assets? Well, the short answer is we spend a huge amount of energy on recruiting and uh, you know, identifying the sort of premier people in, in the field of machine learning, kind of both academic and and practitioners and we exhibit a lot of patience we we wait a really long time to be able to find the people who are kind of really the best and that 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 matters enormously to us both from the standpoint of the success of the firm and also because it's something that you know we value extremely highly just having great colleagues brilliant colleagues that you know i, I want to work in a place where i can learn from all the people around me and 
you know, when when my co-founder Michael Karatanov and I were talking about um, starting Volion, one of the reasons that was on our minds is we wanted to be in control of of who we worked with. You know, we really wanted to be able to assemble a group of people who were, you know, as as brilliant as we could find, but also you know, good people, people that we like, people that we were excited to collaborate with. So so let's talk about some of the fundamental principles Volion is built on. Um, you reference a uh, prediction-based approach from a paper Leo Bryman wrote called Two Cultures. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what Two Cultures actually is. Yeah. So this this paper was written about 20 years ago. Leo Bryman is, was one of the great probabilists and, and statisticians uh, of his generation, a Berkeley professor, right. need I say. And, uh, you know, Leo had been a practitioner in statistical consulting, actually, for quite some time in between uh, a UCLA tenured job and, and returning to academia at Berkeley. And he learned a lot in that time about actually solving prediction problems and instead of um, hypothetically solving them in, mm-hmm. in sort of the, the academic context. And so all of his insights about the difference uh, really culminated in, this, in this, two, this paper from 2000 that he wrote. The, the difference between practical use versus academic theory. If you like, yeah. Okay. And so he identified two schools of thought about solving prediction problems, right? And one school um, is sort of mo- model-based, the idea is there's some stuff you're going to get to observe, stock characteristics, let's say. There's a thing you wish you knew, future price change, let's say. And there's a box in nature that turns those inputs into the output, mm-hmm. right? And in the model-based school of thought, you try to open that box, reason about how it must work, make theories. The, in, 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 in our case, these would be sort of econometric theories, f- financial economics theories, and then those theories have knobs, not many, and you use data to set the knobs, but otherwise you believe the model, right? Uh, and he contrasts that with the with the machine learning school of thought, which is uh, also has the idea of nature's box. Mm-hmm. The, inf- the inputs go in, the, the thing you wish you knew comes out. But in machine learning, you don't try to open the box. You just try to approximate what the box is doing. And your measure of success is predictive accuracy and is only predictive accuracy. Mm-hmm. If you build a gadget and that gadget produces predictions that are that are really accurate, they turn out to look like the, the thing that nature produces, then that is success, right? Um, and at the time he wrote the paper, his assessment was 98% of statistics was taking the model-based approach and 2% was taking the machine learning approach. And, and are those statistics still valid today, or no, have we shifted quite a bit? We shifted quite a bit. I'm, and different different arenas of of uh, prediction problems have have different mixes these days. But even in finance, I would say it's it's probably more like fifty fifty. Really, that that too. much? That, that's yeah. amazing. Um, I, I think you know, and if you the the, the logical extreme is. Uh, natural language modeling, mm-hmm. which was done for decades and decades in the model-based approach where you kind of reasoned about linguistic characteristics of how people kind of do dialogue, and those models had some parameters, and you fit them with data. And then uh, instead, you have, as we said, 
a database of a trillion words and a, and a tool with 175 billion parameters and you run that and there is no hope of completely understanding what is going on right. inside of GPT-3. But nobody complains about that because the results are astounding. The, the thing that you get is incredible. And huh. so that is, uh, by analogy, the way that we reason about running uh, systematic investment strategies. Uh, at the end of the day, predictive accuracy is what creates returns for investors. Being able to give complete descriptions of exactly how the predictions arise does not in itself create returns for investors. Now, I'm not against interpretability and simplicity. All else equal, I love interpretability and simplicity, but all else is not equal. If you want the most accurate predictions, you are going to have to sacrifice some amount of simplicity. In fact, this this truth is is so widespread that Leo gave it a name in his paper. He called it Occam's Dilemma. So Occam's razor mm -hmm. is the philosophical idea that you should choose the simplest explanation that fits the facts. Uh, Occam's Dilemma is the point that in statistical prediction, the simplest approach, even though you wish you could choose it, is not the most accurate approach. If you care about predictive accuracy, if you're putting predictive accuracy first, then you have to embrace a certain amount of complexity and lack of interpretability. Huh, that's really quite fascinating. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and large language models. Uh, you, you follow D.E. Shaw playing in e-commerce and biotech. It seems like this approach to using statistics, probability, and computer science is applicable to so many different fields. It is, yeah. I think you're talking about prediction problems, ultimately. So uh, in recommender systems... You can 
you can think of the question as being, well, if I had to predict what thing I could show a person that would you know, be most likely to change their behavior and, and cause them to buy it, that's, that's a kind of prediction problem sure. that motivates recommendations. Um, in, in biotechnology, very often we are trying to uh, make predictions about whether someone, let's say, does or doesn't have a condition, a, a disease, based on lots of information we can gather from, from high-throughput uh, diagnostic techniques. These days, the keyword in, in, in biology and in medicine and biotechnology is, is high throughput. You're running analyses on, a, on an individual that are producing hundreds of thousands of numbers. Uh, and you want to be able to take all of that, that kind of wealth of data and turn it into diagnostic information. About and we, we've seen AI get applied to pharmaceutical uh, development Absolutely. in ways that, that people just never really could have imagined just a few short years ago. Yeah. Is there a field that AI and large language models are not going to touch, or is this just the future of everything? Uh, the kinds of fields where you would expect uptake to be slow are where you, it is hard to assemble large data sets of, of systematically gathered data. Mm -hmm. uh, and so any field where it's relatively easy to, um, at large scale, let's say, produce the, kinds, the same kinds of information that, that, that experts are using to make their decisions, you should expect that field to be impacted by these tools if it hasn't been already. So, so you're kind of answering my next question, which was, is, what led you back to investment management? But it seems if there's any field that just generates endless amounts of data, it's the markets. That's true. And I had already been uh, really interested in, in the problems of systematic investment strategies from my time working at D.E. Shaw. And so my co-founder, Michael Karatanov, and I, uh, you know, we were both in the Bay Area in the 2004, 2005. Um, he, he was there because of a firm that he had founded, and I was there finishing my Ph.D. And we started to talk about the idea of using contemporary machine learning methods to to build strategies that would be you know, really different from strategies that result from classical techniques. Mm -hmm. And we had met at D.E. Shaw in the 90s and been less excited about this idea because the methods were pretty immature. There wasn't actually a giant diversity of data back in the 90s in, in financial markets, not like, not like there was in 2005. And compute was really still quite expensive in the 90s, whereas in 2005, you know, it had been dropping... In, in the usual Moore's Law way, and this was even before GPUs. Right. And so when we looked at the problem in 2005, it felt like there was a, a very live opportunity to do something with a lot of promise that would be really different, and we had the sense that not a lot of people um, were of the same opinion, and so it seemed like a, a, something that we should try. The, the, there was a uh, void... Nothing. Nothing. The market hates more than a, right. a vacuum in an right. intellectual approach. So, so you you mentioned the diversity of, of various data sources. Um, what what don't you consider? Like how how mm -hmm. far off of price and volume do you go in the net you're casting for inputs into into your systems? Well, I think we're prepared as a you know as a as a research principle. We're prepared to consider any data that has some bearing on price formation, like some some plausible bearing on how prices are formed. Now, of course, we're you know we're a relatively 
small group of people with a lot of ideas, and uh, and so we have to prioritize. So, you know, in in the event we end up pursuing data that you know makes a lot of sense. You know, we don't we don't try. I mean, can you go as far as politics or the weather? Like, how mm-hmm. far off of prices can you can you look? So, you know, an example would be the weather. You're for for most securities, you're not going to be very interested in the weather, but for commodities sure. futures, you might be. So that you know, that's the kind of reasoning you would apply, mm-hmm. right? Um, huh. Re- really, really interesting. Um, so let let's talk about some of the strategies you guys are running. Uh, short and mid horizon U.S. equities, European equities, Asian equities, mid horizon U.S. credit and then cross assets. So uh, I mind to assume all of these are machine learning based and, and how similar or different is each approach to each of those asset classes? Yeah, they're all machine learning based. Uh, the kind of principles that I've described of using as much complexity as, as you need to maximize predictive accuracy, et cetera, those principles underlie all the systems. But of course, it's trading trading corporate bonds is very different from trading equities. And so the the implementations reflect that reality. Huh. So so let's talk a little bit about the four-step process that you you bring to the systematic approach. And this is off of your site. So it's it's data prediction engine portfolio construction and execution. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that is heavily computer uh, and machine learning based at each step along the way. Is that is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, to different degrees. The the data gathering that's um, you know that's a that's a largely a, a software and kind of operations and infrastructure job. Do, do you guys have to spend a lot of time cleaning up that data and making sure that, because you, you hear between CRISP and S&P and Bloomberg, sometimes you'll pull something up and they're just all off a little bit from each other because they all bring a very different approach to data yep. assembly. How do you make sure everything is consistent yep. and there's no errors or errants um, inputs throughout. Yeah, through a, a lot of effort, <laughs> essentially. There, there, we have, uh, you know, we have an entire group of of people who focus on data operations, both uh, for gathering of historical data and for the management of the ongoing live data feeds. There's no way around that. I mean, that's just work that you you have to that you have to do. You just have business. to brute force your way through that. Yeah. And then the prediction engine sounds like that's the single most um, important part of the machine learning process. If if I'm understanding you correctly, that that's where all the 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 meat of the technology is. Yeah, I understand the sentiment. I I, I mean, it's worth emphasizing that you do not get to a, a successful systematic strategy without all the ingredients. Mm-hmm. You have to have clean data because of the garbage in, garbage out mm-hmm. principle. Um, you have to have accurate predictions, but you know. Predictions don't automatically translate into returns for investors. Those predictions are kind of the power that drives the the portfolio holding part of the system. So, so let's talk about that portfolio construction. Mm-hmm. Given that you have a prediction engine that and good data going into it, so you're fairly confident as to the output. Yep. How do you then take that output and say, "Here's how I'm going to build a portfolio based on what this generates"? Yeah. So there are there are three big ingredients in the the portfolio construction. The the predictions, uh, what is usually called a risk model in this business, which means some uh, 
some understanding of how volatile prices are across all the securities you're trading, how correlated they are, um, how you know if they have a if they have a big movement, how big that movement will be. Um, that's all the risk model. And then the final ingredient uh, is uh, what's usually called a, a market impact model, mm-hmm. and that means um, an, an understanding of how much you are going to push prices away from you when you try to trade. This is a reality of all trading. Right. If you buy a lot of a security, you push the price up. You push it away from you in the unfavorable direction. And in the systems that we run, the predictions that we're trying to capture are about the same size as the effect that we have on the markets when we trade. Right. And so you cannot neglect that impact effect when you're when you're thinking about how, what portfolios to, to, to hold. So execution becomes really important. If yes. you're not executing well, you are moving prices away from your profit. That's right. And it is, you know, probably the the, the, the single thing that that undoes um, quantitative hedge funds most often is that they they misunderstand how much they're moving prices. They get too big, they start trading too much, and they sort of blow themselves up. It's funny that you say that because as you were describing that, the first name that popped into my head was long-term capital management, trading these really thinly traded, uh, obscure fixed income products. Yeah. Um, and they, everything they bought, they sent higher because there just wasn't any volume in it. And when they needed liquidity, there was none to be had. And yes. you know that plus no risk management, 100x leverage yes. equals uh, kaboom. Barry, and, they made a number of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> the, book, the book is good. So When Genius Fail. Oh, you know, absolutely. I love that Fantastic. film. Really a fa- fascinating. So, fascinating so when account. you're reading a book like that, yeah. um, it, somewhere in the back of your head, are you thinking, hey, this is like a what not to do when you're setting up a machine learning fund? How, well, I, I, how influential I, yeah. is something like that? Well, 100%. I mean, look, I, I think th- the most important adage I've ever heard in my professional life is good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> so the extent to which you can get good judgment from other people's experience, uh, that is that that is like a free Cheap lunch. Cheap tuition. Yeah, that is like absolutely. A free lunch. And so we talk a lot about all the all the mistakes that 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 other people have made and uh you know we do not congratulate ourselves on having avoided mistakes we think those people were smart i mean look the, you know you, you read about these events and these people none of these people were dummies they were sophisticated nobel laureates and, yeah, right um, it's they just didn't have a guidebook on what not to do right. which which you guys do uh we don't no i don't think we do <laughs> i mean apart from that apart from right. reading about right but everybody is undone by a failure that they they didn't they did they didn't think of or didn't know about yet right. and we're extremely cognizant of that huh that has to be somewhat humbling to constantly being on the lookout for that blind spot that could disrupt everything. Yes. Yeah, humility is the key ingredient in running in running these systems. Huh. Re- really quite quite amazing. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how academically focused Volion is. Uh, you guys have a pretty deep R&D team internally. You teach at Berkeley. What does it mean for a hedge fund to be academically focused? What I would say probably is 
kind of evidence-based rather than academically focused? Saying mm-hmm. academically focused gives the impression that kind of papers would be the, the, the goal or the, the desired output, and that's not the case at all. We have you know, a very specific applied problem that we are trying to solve. Papers are a mean to an end. Papers are, uh, you know, we don't write papers for external consumption. We do lots of writing internally, and that's to make sure that, uh, you know, we're keeping track of our own kind of scientific uh, process. But you're fairly widely published in statistics and yes. machine learning. Yes. What, what purpose does that serve other than a calling card for the fund as well as hey, I have this idea and I want to see what the rest of my peers think of it. When when you put stuff out into the world, what sort of feedback or pushback mm-hmm. do you get? Uh, I guess I would have to say I really, I do that as kind of a, a, a double life of non-financial research. Uh-huh. So it's just something that uh, I really enjoy. Um, principally what it means is that I get to work with PhD students mm-hmm. and you know we have really uh, outstanding PhD students at, at Berkeley in statistics. And so um, it's an opportunity for me to do a, a kind of uh, intellectual work that, uh, n- namely, you know, writing a paper, laying out an argument for public consumption, et cetera, that is kind of closed off as far as So Volion not adjacent to what you guys are doing at, at Volion? Generally, no. Huh. No. That, in, that's really interesting. So so then I, I always assume that that was part of your process for developing new models to apply machine learning to new assets. Um, take us through the process. How do you go about saying, hey, this is an asset class we don't have exposure to. Let's see how to apply what we already know to that specific area. Yeah, we have. It's a great question. So we're trying as much as possible to get the the problem for a new asset class into a familiar setup, into you know as stand as standard a, a, a setup as 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 we can, and so we know what these systems look like in the world of equity, um, and so if you're trying to do the same kind, if you're trying to build the same kind of system for corporate bonds, and you start off by saying, well, okay, I'd like I need to know you know closing prices or intraday prices for all all the bonds. Already, you have a very big problem in in corporate <laughs> bonds because there is no there is no live price feed that's that's showing you a, a bid offer quote uh, in the way that there is in equity. And so, before you can even get started thinking about predicting how a price is going to change, it would be nice if you know what the price currently was. Mm-hmm. And that is already a problem you have to solve in corporate bonds as opposed to being just an input that you have access to. The, the old joke was trading by appointment only. Yeah. And, and that seems to be a bit of an issue. And there are so many more bond issues than there are equities. Absolutely. Ha- is this just a database challenge or how, how do you work no, around it's a, it? No, it's a, it's a statistics problem, but it's, it's huh. a different kind of statistics problem. We're not in, in this case, we're not trying to yet. We're not yet trying to predict the future of any quantity. We're trying to say, I, I wish I knew what the fair value of this of this QCIP was. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't see that exactly because there's no live order book that with a bid and an offer that's got lots of liquidity that lets me figure out the fair value. But so, I do so have, at best you have a recent price, yeah, or maybe it, not even so recent. I have lots of related information. Mm-hmm. I, I know you know. This bond, maybe this bond didn't trade today, but it traded a few times yesterday. I get to, I, I know where it, it traded. I'm in touch with bond dealers, so I know where they've quoted this bond, maybe only on one side over the last few days. 
I have some information about the company that issued this bond, etc. So I have lots of stuff that's related to the number I know, that I want to know. I just don't know that number, right? And so I, what I want to try to do is kind of fill in and do what's what in statistics or in control we would call a now casting problem. Uh-huh. And it's it, it, an analogy actually is to um, automatically controlling an airplane. Surprisingly, oh, really? the main there there are there are when you're if you're trying if a software is trying to fly an airplane, there are six things that it absolutely has to know has to know the X Y Z of where the plane is uh-huh. and the X Y Z of its velocity where it's headed. Uh-huh. Right, those are the six most important numbers. Now, nature does not just supply those numbers to you. You can't you cannot know those numbers with perfect exactitude. But there's lots of instruments on the plane and there's GPS and all sorts of information that is very closely related to the numbers you wish you knew. And you can use statistics to go from all that stuff that's adjacent to a guess and infill of the the thing you wish you knew. And the same goes with the current price of a of a corporate bond. Huh, that that's really kind of interesting. So I'm I'm curious as to how often you start working your way into one particular uh, asset or, or a particular strategy for that asset and just suddenly realize, oh, this is wildly different than we previously expected. And suddenly you're down a rabbit hole to just wildly unexpected areas. It sounds like that isn't all that uncommon. That is not uncommon at all. Huh. No, it, it's a nice, you know. There's this kind of wishful thinking that, oh, we have, you know, we figured it out in one asset class in, in, in the sense that we have a system that's kind of stable and, and performing reasonably well that we that we have a feel for. And now we want to take that system and, and somehow replicate it in a different situation. And, well, we're going to standardize the, the, the new situation to make it look like the old situation. That's the principle. That principle kind of quickly goes out the window. When you when you start to make contact with the reality of how the new asset class actually behaves, so stocks are different than credit, or different than bonds, or different than commodities. They're all like starting fresh. Yeah. Over what what yeah. some of the more surprising things you've learned as you've applied machine learning to totally different asset classes? Well, I think you know corporate bonds provide a, a lot of examples of this. I mean, you, the, the fact that you don't actually really know <laughs> uh, a, a good live price or a good live seems bid crazy, offer right? seems, seems, seems you know it's surprising. I mean, this is this fact is has started to change. Like over the years, there's been an accelerating electronification of corporate bond trading, and that's mm-hmm. you know that's that's been a big advantage for us actually because we were kind of first movers, and so we've really benefited from that. So the problem is is diminished relative to how it was, you know, six seven years ago when we started. But it's still, but it's still essentially very mu- relative to equities. It's absolutely there. Yeah. Uh, so you get so when, in other words, if I'm looking at a bond mutual fund or even a bond ETF that's trading during the day, that price is somebody's best approximation of the value of all the bonds inside. But really, you don't know the NAV, do you? You're just kind of guessing. Barry, don't even get me started on bond ETFs. <laughs> really? Because it seems like that would be the first place that would show up. Hey, bond ETFs sound like throughout mm. the day they're going to be mispriced a little bit or wildly mispriced. Well, the bond ETF, there's a sense if you're a if you're a market purist in which they can't be mispriced because there's their price is set by supply and demand in the ETF market, and that's a super liquid market. And so there may be a difference between the market price of the ETF and the under, the NAV of the underlying portfolio. Right. Except in many cases with bond ETFs, there's not even a, a crisply defined underlying portfolio. <laughs> right. It turns out that the authorized participants in those ETF markets can um, negotiate with the fund manager about 
um, exactly what the constituents are of the create redeem baskets. Huh. And so it's not even at all clear what you mean when you say that the NAV is this or that relative to the price of the ETF. So, so when I asked about what's surprising when you work your way down a rabbit hole, yeah. hey, we don't know what the hell's in this bond ETF. Trust <laughs> us, it's all good. That's a pretty surprise, and I'm only exaggerating a little bit, but that seems like that's kind of shocking. It's, uh, it is surprising when you find out about it, but you, you quickly come to understand, if you, if you trade single name bonds as we do, you quickly come to understand why bond ETFs work that way. Uh-huh. I recall a couple of years ago, there was a big Wall Street Journal article on the GLD ETF. And yeah. from that article, I learned that GLD was formed because gold dealers had just excess gold piling up in their warehouses and they needed a way to move it. So that was kind of shocking about that ETF. Um, any other space that that led to a, a, a sort of big surprise as you worked your way into it? Well, I think um, ETFs are, a, are a kind of a good source of these examples. So the volatility ETFs, the, the you know the ETFs that are that are based on the VIX or that are short the VIX. You, you uh-huh. may remember several years ago. I was going to say the this, ones that haven't blown up. Yeah, yet. right. There was this event called Volmageddon, right? Where uh, that was ETF know. notes, wasn't it? The, yeah, uh, the ETFs, ETNs, note. right? So right. there, there are these essentially these investment products that were short VIX, and VIX went through a spike that <laughs> ca- caused them to ha- have to liquidate. Which was part. I mean, the people who designed the this exchange traded note, they they understood that this was a possibility so they had a sort of uh descriptions in their in in their contract for what it what it would mean um but uh yeah always surprising to to watch something suddenly go out of business we we seem to get a thousand year flood every couple of years maybe we shouldn't be calling these things thousand year floods yeah, that's right, right. That, that's a we, that's a big misnomer I think as statisticians we tell people you know if you if you think that you've experienced a six sigma event the problem is that you have underestimated sigma <laughs> <laughs> that that's really interesting so so given the gap in the world between computer science and in investment management uh, how long is it going to be before that narrows and we start seeing a whole lot more of the sort of work you're doing applied across the board to to the world of investing? Well, I think it's happening. It's been happening for, for quite a long time. I mean, the, for example, all of modern portfolio theory really mm-hmm. it kind of began in in the 50s with uh, you know first of all Markowitz and, mm-hmm. and other people thinking about you know what it means to benefit from diversification and the idea that you know diversification is the only free lunch in finance. So I would uh, I would say that you know the idea of um, thinking in a in a systematic and and scientific way about how to um, to manage and grow wealth. Uh, not you know not even just for institutions but also for individuals has uh, is an example of of a way that these ideas have uh, kind of had profound effects when cyber criminals strike the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware yet in a recent EY poll only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. 
by understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I know I only have you for a, a, a little while longer, mm-hmm. so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, <laughs> tell us what you're streaming these days. Uh, what are you either listening to or watching uh, to keep yourself entertained? Uh, I uh, few things I've been watching recently. Uh, the Bear, I don't know if you've heard. So of great. So great, right? Right. And, and, and I'm, set in Chicago, as I know we were just talking about from being Chicago from Chicago. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so, so and and there are parts of that show that are kind of a love letter to Chicago. Absolutely, as you yeah. get deeper into the series, because it starts out kind of gritty, and you're seeing the underside, and then as we progress, you, it really becomes like a lovely postcard. Yeah, yeah, such so, an amazing show. So, really, really love that show. Um, I was I was late to Better Call Saul, but I'm I'm finishing up. Uh-huh. Just as, as, I think as good as as Breaking Bad. So, uh, I. Uh, Maybe when you haven't heard of, there's a show called Mister In Between, which is Mister In Between. Yeah, it's on Hulu. It's from it's from Australia. It's about a guy who's, um, uh, you know, a a doting father living his life. He's also essentially a muscle man and hitman for <laughs> for uh, local criminals in, huh. in his part of Australia. But uh, it's half hour dark comedy. Right, so uh, not quite Barry and not quite Sopranos, somewhere in no, between. No, yeah, not that's exactly. Yeah, huh. so- sounds really interesting. Um, uh, tell us about your early mentors who helped shape your career. Well, Barry, I've been lucky to have uh, a lot of people who were, uh, you know, both really smart and talented and willing to uh, take you know take the time to help me learn and understand things. So, actually, my co-founder Michael Karatanov, he was kind of my first mentor. Mm-hmm. In in finance, he he had been a DE Shaw for several years uh, when I got there, and he uh, he he really taught me kind of the ins and outs of of market microstructure. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with uh, a couple of people who managed me at DE Shaw, Yossi Friedman and and Kapil Matur, who have gone on to hugely successful careers in quantitative finance, and they they taught me a lot too. Uh, when I did my PhD, my advisor Mike Jordan, who's a kind of world famous machine learning researcher, um, you know, I learned learned enormously from him. And there's another professor of statistics um, who sadly passed away uh, about uh, 15 years ago, named David Friedman. He was really uh, and, and just an intellectual giant 
of of the 20th century in probability and statistics. He was both, um, you know, one of the most brilliant probabilists and also an applied statistician. And this is this is like a pink diamond kind of com- com- combination. It's it's mm-hmm. that rare to to find someone who has that kind of technical capability, but also understands the pragmatics of actually doing that analysis. He spent a lot of time as an expert witness. He was the lead um, statistical consultant for the the case on census adjustment that went to the Supreme Court. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, he told me uh, that what went that in the end. Uh, you know, the the people against adjustment, they won in a unanimous Supreme Court decision. And David Friedman told me, he said, you know, all that work and we only convinced nine people. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, but nine, nine people that kind of matter. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So um, it was just, it was a real, it was kind of a, a once in a lifetime privilege to, to get to spend time with someone of that intellectual caliber. Huh. Um, wow, and that, there were others too. That, I mean, that, I've, been, I've been very fortunate. That, that's quite a list to, to begin with. Um, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a big book reader, so I'm, I had a long list, but, uh, probably you, one of by my, by the way, this is everybody's favorite section okay. of the podcast. People are always looking for good book recommendations. Yeah. And if they like what you, um, said earlier, they're, they're going to love, love your book okay. recommendations. So fire away. So, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of kind of modernist dystopian fiction. Okay. So a couple of examples of that would be the book Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. um, Wind Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. Those are those are two of my all-time favorite books. Um, there's a, I think, much less well-known but beautiful novel. It's a kind of academic coming-of-age novel called Stoner by John Williams. Uh a, a really moving, just a tremendous book. Um, sort of more dystopia would be White Noise, DeLillo, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of the, the classics that everybody knows, 1984 and Brave New World. Those are two more of my favorite. Huh. It, um, it's funny. When you mention The Bear, I'm in the middle of reading a book that I would swear the writers of The Bear leaned on called Unreasonable Hospitality, by um, somebody who worked for the Danny Myers Hospitality Group, okay. Eleven Madison Park and uh-huh. Gramercy Tavern, and all these famous New York haunts, and the scene in the Bear where they overhear a um, couple say, "Oh, we visited Chicago when you never had deep dish," so they send the guy out to get deep dish. There's part of the book where at Eleven Madison Park. This uh, people actually showed up with suitcases. It was the last thing they would eat doing before they're heading to the airport. <laughs> and they said, oh, we ate all, the, all these great places in New York, but we never had a New York hot dog. And what do they do? They send them out to get someone out to get a hot dog. Yep. They plate it and and use all the condiments to make it very special. I see. And it, it looks like the it was ripped right out of the bear okay. or vice versa. Right, but right. if you're interested in just, hey, how can we disrupt the restaurant business and make it not just about the celebrity chef in the kitchen, but the whole experience, fascinating kind of nonfiction book. That does sound really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah really. You, you mentioned The Bear and it just yep. popped into my head. Uh, any of the books you want to mention? That's, that's a good list to start with. Yeah, my other kind of big interest is science fiction, speculative fiction. I knew you were going to go there. Unsurprisingly, right. Sorry. Let's go. Sorry. But... Uh, so there are some classics that I think everybody should read. Ursula Le Guin Love is her. Un- just amazing. So yeah. The Dispossessed 
and The Left Hand of Darkness. Those yep. are just two of the best books I've ever read, period. Forget Left Hand of Darkness stays with you for a long time. A long time, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. really, really amazing books. Um, I'm rereading right now Cryptonomicon uh-huh. by Neil Stevenson. Um, and one other thing I, I try to do is I have very big gaps in, in my reading. For example, I've never read Updike. So I started reading The Rabbit series. Right, and World According to Garp, and they're, they're very much of, a, of an era. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, um, what else? Give us more. Uh, wow, okay. Let's see. George Saunders, he, oh, wow. You, I think, Hit me. I think you'd love him. So he's, his real strength is um, short fiction. He ha, he, he's written great novels, too, but uh, 10th of December, this is his best collection of, of fiction. And this is more kind of modern uh, uh, dystopian, kind of com- comic dystopian uh, stuff. You keep coming back to dystopia. Yeah, I just, I'm fascinated. I, I, by I, that. I, I find you know it's uh, it's very different from the, my my day to day reality. Uh-huh. So I think it's a you know it's a great uh, change of pace for me to be able to read this stuff. Um, so uh, some some science writing, I can tell you probably the best science book I ever read is The Selfish Gene mm-hmm. by Richard Dawkins, um, which kind of really, you know, you have a kind of intuitive understanding of genetics and natural selection in Darwin, but the language that Dawkins uses really makes you appreciate just um, how how much the genes are in charge and how little we as the, as the you know, he calls he calls organisms the survival machines that the genes have kind of built and and exist inside in order to ensure their propagation and his whole the whole point of view in that book just gives you uh it's really eye-opening makes you think about natural selection and evolution and genetics in a completely different way even though it's all based on the same kind of facts that you know right um, it's, it's just the this, framing it's and the, the framing and the perspective that yeah. are really that really kind of blow your mind huh. so it's a great it's a great book to read um Huh. That that's a hell of a list. You've given people a lot of things to to start with. And now, down to our last two questions. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either investment management or machine learning? Yeah. So I mean, I I work in a very specialized subdomain of finance. So there are a lot of people who are going to be interested in investment and finance that I that I couldn't give any specific advice to. I have mm-hmm. kind of general advice that uh, that I think is useful both for finance and, and even more broadly. This advice is really kind of top of Maslow's pyramid advice. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if you're trying to kind of write your novel and pay the rent while you get it done, this, this is, I, I can't really help you with that. But, um, you know, if what you care about is building this career, then I would say number one piece of advice is work with incredible people. Like far and away, much more important than what the particular field is. The details of what you're working on is the the caliber of the people that you do it with. Huh. That's Both really... in terms of your own satisfaction um, and how much you learn, and uh, and 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 all of that. I think you know you'll learn you'll you'll benefit hugely uh, on on a personal level from from working with incredible people. And if you if you don't work with people that are like that, then you're probably going to have a lot of professional unhappiness. So it's kind huh. of either or. That That's a really intriguing answer. So final question, what do you know about the world of investing, machine learning, large language models, just the application of technology 
to the field of investing that you wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you were really first ramping up? Mm -hmm. I think one of the most important lessons that I had to learn the hard way kind of going through and and running these systems was uh, that it's uh, kind of comes back to the the point you made earlier about the, the primacy of prediction rules. And it may be true that the most important thing is is the prediction quality, but there are lots of other very necessary mandatory ingredients, and I would put kind of risk management at, at the top of that list. So I think it's um, it's easy to uh, maybe neglect risk management to a certain extent and, and focus um, all of your attention on predictive accuracy, but uh, I, I think it really does turn out that if you don't have high-quality risk management to go along with that predictive accuracy, you won't succeed. And and I I guess I, I wish I had appreciated that in a in a really deep way 25 years ago. John, this has been really absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't even know where to begin other than saying thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise. We have been speaking with John McAuliffe. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer at the $5 billion hedge fund Volion Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well... Be sure and check out any of the previous 500 we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz. Follow me on Twitter at Barry underscore Ritholtz until I get my hacked account at Ritholtz back. Um, I I say that because... The process of dealing with the 17 people left at once Twitter, now X, is unbelievably frustrating and annoying. Follow all of the fine family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Uh, Paris Wald is my producer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Sean Russo is my director of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.